a lot of patients are looking for like more like that whole treating the whole patient, right? So clinics that offer, you know, health and wellness, clinics that offer, you know, nutritionists that are specifically based to to infertility, clinics that offer yoga for infertility or acupuncture for infertility, things like that, that can really help balance out a patient, clinics that offer support groups or online support groups. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today, we have an interesting change of pace on Inside Reproductive Health. Karen Jeffries is a fourth grade dual language teacher outside of New York. She doesn't consider herself a writer by trade, but she did write a hilarious book about infertility. That's probably how you know her as hilariously infertile on social media where she has over 60,000 followers on her different platforms and has used to sell her book worldwide. She's on the board of BabyQuest Foundation. She does comedy nights, has done a very successful one in New York City at Westside Comedy Club, has another one coming up in Boston, which is the hilariously infertile Boston Comedy Night at the Regent Theater, Arlington, Massachusetts, Sunday, November 10th at 7 p.m. Tickets are on sale now. More than anything, Karen hopes to help other women through their infertility treatments one laugh at a time. I know that she does because that's how we got connected was people telling me how funny that she was and how much they enjoy following her social. So Ms. Jeffries, Karen, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you so much for having me. So let's keep the profanity to a minimum. But other than that, I don't care where this goes. This is really interesting to have you on because uh, most of our audience is REI physicians, practice owners, practice managers. So you're the first comedian on the show. There you go. There's always a first. At least the first one that gets paid for it. Yeah. (laughs) When did you start discovering that this was a particular niche? Were you a comedian who then went through the infertility journey and started experiencing that? Or were you just starting to share your infertility journey and realize, hey, I'm pretty funny? Yeah, it was. I'm definitely not a comedian. I, like you said, I teach fourth grade dual language, Spanish and English. So I went through my infertility struggles and I never had social media. I never had a personal Facebook account. Like I had nothing. And when I was on maternity leave with my second daughter, I was helping like a friend and a family member through their cycles. And my husband and I were doing dishes one night and I said, well, you know, so-and-so is ovulating. So it's go time for her. And -and so-and-so's, you know, follicles are at 17 millimeters. So I think she's going to have her IUI on Sunday. And he was like, I think that you should write a book about this. And I was like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Like, I don't, I don't even have time to read a book, let alone write a book. And I kind of laughed him off and I didn't think anything of it. And then I would say like a few weeks later, I just sat down one day with my laptop and I started writing and it just poured out of me. And as I was writing, I was like, wait, this is funny. And 
snarky and inappropriate in the way that like women really talk when we are like really talking to each other. And five weeks later, the book was pretty much done and it hasn't gone through that many like edits since then. And then I didn't know that like you have to be famous to get published. So I started sending it to all these publishing companies and either and agents in New York City and they either didn't respond or the ones that did respond said, we just don't think it's a big enough market. And to me, that just fueled my fire because I was like, no, like that's the problem, right? The problem is you don't think it's a big enough market because people aren't talking about it and people are at home suffering and crying themselves to sleep and thinking that they're alone. And I was like, we just can't, like, I can't have that. So one of my friends said, he's like, you need to get on social media and you need to get a website. And I was like, I hate social media. And he was like, this is what you have to do. So I started social media and I started hilariously infertile. And and I remember in the beginning, I was just shocked that like, I remember when I hit 300 followers and I was like, oh my goodness, like, I cannot believe that there are 300 people out there who want to see this content and who also want to laugh about infertility. And then it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And as the platform grew, I realized that, you know, last summer was a good summer to publish the book. We still, I still went through a a self-publishing company because I still couldn't, still not famous, can't get published by like a real, you know, real publishing company, I say in, in air quotes, but I, I thought it was really important just to get this book out there and to help people. And so that they feel like they're not alone. So definitely not a comedian. I just kind of started talking about it and people latched on, I guess. I want to zoom out and like share part of the connection of why it makes sense to have you on a show like this. That's mostly for practice owners and doctors and practice managers, because they're often telling me about the different challenges in communicating with the patients. There's so many challenges in communicating with patients. Patients are coming in, having read Dr. Google. They're looking at reviews before they come in. They're seeing what a friend said they did on Instagram and then questioning their prognosis if it's not the same. They're doing so many different they're finding doctors in in different ways and sometimes they aren't coming in as quickly as they should be for optimal help and that can frustrate providers that if she had just come two or three years earlier i would have so many more options to be able to help her and and more quickly and cost effectively and so there's all these challenges with communication but when it comes time to to get them to actually communicate with their patients it's like everything has to be perfect for them i've had clients that won't do any kind of social media video on their phone it has to be cinematography and bringing in the videographer and the whole production and the editing to do it. Some people won't post something on social media unless it's like everything is lined up perfectly and has, you know, their design and their logo in the right corner. And, And then here you come and just with the most cavalier, I, w- I don't want to say cavalier, but I do want to say candid way of speaking are doing so at mass because it's so authentic. Yeah. And I think that's what people really resonate with is the fact that like, it's just me, you know, like it's just me remembering what it was like to be going through infertility and, and finding these funny things and, and posting them, you know, like I don't really, I don't curate what I post. I'm not like, Ooh, like, you know, and sometimes there, there have been times where like a couple posts I've gotten like a bad feedback and I've been like, oh, okay, like maybe that was distasteful. And like, that's good. I need that line, you know, like most people do. But, um, 
but I think that in terms of, yeah, I just, it's just, it's just me. Like I, you know, I, I'm in my pajamas, I'm posting, I'm talking about this, that, or the other. And that's, it's just real life. So I don't really, I don't filter like what comes out of my mouth. I don't really filter like my content either. And I think that in terms of doctors, what I found in clinics in general is that clinics and doctors are starting to look more like the whole patient. What I found, and I don't know if you agree with this, but like starting, I've, I've had patients come to me, my followers come to me and say, my nurse actually recommended you or my, my ultrasound technician said, do you follow hilariously infertile or, you know what I mean? And I'm like, oh my gosh, what clinic was that? Cause I want to reach out to them. And I want to thank them, you know, cause I think that's so amazing that they're like, listen, we're going to take care from like your waist down, but from like the rest up, like if you need a laugh or if you need to feel like you're like every thought you're having is 100% sane and you're not losing your mind. Like go to this, you know? And I think that that's actually a really good way that doctors can connect their patients as well. I know we used to, and we probably haven't updated it with like our new onboarding for clients, but we used to have a list and you were on there. It was a list of 12 blogs and podcasts and we would give it to clients to say, give this to your patients. When you have patients coming in, just give them this resource of here's some, uh, and we had another one like with support groups and with other resources, but it's like here's some blogs and some podcasts that you can listen to. Here's some forums. We don't necessarily recommend all of them or you know all the, whatever legal disclaimer, but here's a resource for you. And so I think I, I would also want to commend whatever ultra tech or ultrasound tech or nurse is recommending you to their patients because one, they're doing something else to add value in that relationship. And that is a more holistic form of care. And then two, it just shows me that they're on the pulse of what's going on in the community. Yeah, exactly. And they understand that like, that all like that funny stuff about the progesterone suppository or the pressure in an oil injections, like it's all like, it, it is funny if you get past like how devastating it is, which it is, and I'm not negating that and nor is any place on my platform I'm negating the tears and the sadness and the sorrow. But if you, if you can get past that, like there are some really funny parts, you know what I mean? Like, everything having to do with the sperm donation, everything about that, I find hilarious. Like it just does not get any funnier to me than like men having to give their donation and like there being a sliding door and a person standing right there, right? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's just hilarious. So I, you know, so yeah, I think that it's great that we're looking at, at all of that, especially in clinics. You really do a good job of balancing that somehow because it is, it's gut-wrenching for people. That's like, there's nothing funny about it except for all of the things that you're you're sharing that are funny when looked in a different light, but you recognize the the serious side of it too. I just thought of this. And if I were a better podcast host, I would have sent the clip to you in case you hadn't seen it. But have you ever seen Daniel Tosh's bit on infertility? I just wonder. No, I haven't. I love him. It's ruthless. Yeah. So I don't know if anybody who's listening has ever listened to it. It is brutal. Do not listen to it if you don't like cringe comedy. Do not listen to it if you're not prepared to be directly insulted but he he has a bit about infertility i want to say it's called buff is the name of the track maybe we link it in the show notes maybe we don't but i had i had our creative director or i just asked her if she listened to it and then of course 
she she went and listened to it despite my my warnings against it. She wasn't bothered because she enjoys cringe comedy. I think she thought it was funny. But is your style of humor is it cringe? Sometimes you ever like really try to take gap. I know you like you've got a bar room type of humor, let's say. But do you ever like really try to gut punch people? Push the envelope. Yeah, I would say probably not as much as Daniel Tosh. I know that there are sometimes that that he's. I mean, I've I, I've watched a lot of his stuff, and I mean, I remember one time I watched something, and he was like, "I'm sorry," like because like people he was talking about how people get offended at his content, and he was like, "I'm sorry that you got upset about my mythical." creature like baby of Brad Pitt and someone else I thought it was really funny because I can relate to that because people get upset about things that like how could I have possibly known that that was a situation that was going you know what I mean like one time I was on a field trip with my students and afterwards I was like yay like we didn't lose anyone and no one died like as a joke you know and someone DM me and they're like you know, just so you know, someone, someone had an accident on one of the field trips. I'm like, that's not what I meant. You know what I mean? Like, that's impossible for me to know that. And I'm so sorry for your tragedy. So, um, in terms of my comedy, it's, I consider it like seventh grade boy humor. That's like my go-to. It's a lot of, I hope that we're like, a lot of like dicks and vaginas, right? Like a lot of, a lot of that type of humor. And I talk about the one thing that I try to push, and this actually happened at the New York City comedy show was my, so one time I met the people who like buff the sperm because my fertility doctor said that when my husband comes to, to give his donation, and these were his exact words, that the lab on site will clean and buff his sperm. And I remember being like, what? Like, are you kidding me? Like, we, I was dying. And like, my husband and I immediately we walked out of there. I'm like, are you picturing Oompa Loompas cleaning each individual sperm? That's what we were picturing. And so I was doing this speech, this kind of, you know, speech. At, sometimes I do it at doctor clinics also, because they need like motivational speakers to come in and be like, you guys are doing a great job. But here's my patient perspective. And, they're, you know, just to give them a little bit of perspective and like, you know, motivation. So the, there are these two women in the front row and they're like, that's us. And I was like, wait, stop you're the Oompa Loompas. And they're like, yeah, that's us. And I was like, I was like, are you guys in relationships? And they were like, yes. And I was like, heterosexual relationships, like with men. And they're like, yes. And so my whole bit in the show is that like, it takes a really strong man to be in a relationship with someone who like analysis and like looks at semen analysis all day long. Like they could, I'm like, what would you do? Like I would have an anxiety attack if I was dating someone and he's like, I analyze feminine discharge for a living. Like I would be like, Oh my God, like you're never seeing my discharge. You know what I mean? Like, so to me, and so then I go into this thing about how like every man is probably like, well, what if my guys aren't swimmers? Like, what if they just want to sit on their couch with their hands down their pants? And what if I had some asparagus? And which the joke is that, I mean, obviously that changes the dynamic of your donation. I've been told. And what if like, what if I, you know, stuff like that. that I think that people like when I did it, they didn't really know like what to, what to expect. And like, can I laugh at this woman making fun of men being obsessed about their semen? Like, I don't know. It was, it was interesting. So I would say like, that's pretty much as, as far as it goes in terms of things like that. There's yeah. So it's, it's kind of like in there, not quite Daniel Tosh, but, but right or, along seventh grade boy. <laughs> do you say you, do you do this to speak, you speak to clinic staff sometimes? Yeah. Clinic staff? Yeah. Yeah. So if, oh, anyone, they, so if they, anyone listening is interested, but I have, and, and a lot of doctors, like some doctors or some staff members don't get to spend that time with that much time with the patients or some staff members, like they're just in the grind. And I talk about the fertility clinic rules, like the unspoken rules about how you're not allowed to talk at the fertility clinic. There's no smiling, no salutations. And one receptionist who actually 
was the receptionist when I was going to this clinic. She came up to me and she's like, but you don't get it. She's like, you're so right about those rules, but those rules apply to us too. She's like, we can't feel like we can talk or be happy because it's such like a serious place. And she's like, and then like she got pregnant and she's like, do you know how long I tried to hide this? You know, because she felt like she had to hide it. And I was like, that's got to be so rough for practitioners and people who are working in the clinics to have to go through that emotionally all like every day and also all the sadness that comes along with it. So yeah, I have done this speech for, for different clinics and stuff. And they, they just, it's kind of just like a reminder, like you're doing a great job and you're needed and you're, you know, even though maybe you're giving bad news, like it's your huge part of like making families and, and helping people move forward in their fertility. And I just think that it's what they're doing is amazing. So that's what I try to do to bring to them. Well, I think you have a good way of looking at both and communicating like both different perspectives. The fact that you even notice that about the staff and what they have to go through is important to share with patients as well as you know, what patients sometimes perceive that maybe the clinic isn't readily paying attention to. I think that's really important and not to just like decide one way or the other. And I think it's a good example for clinics too, is that sometimes they feel like they're just beat up on online reviews. Sometimes they feel like, well, I don't like social media. I don't want to, I don't really enjoy doing this stuff. Or they feel patient expectations are so unrealistic. Then tell your story. You have to tell your story and you don't have to do it in a way that says that that yours is wrong, but it's like, why don't you show us what compassion fatigue is? Why don't you show us the volume of calls that you have to deal with? Why don't you show, why don't you tell us some stories about really hard news that you had to give? You know, not everybody has to be funny and not everybody has to be sexy. Not everybody has to be debonair, but if you could just tell us what you're going through, I think that addresses, you know, that same concern that, that you just brought up. Exactly. And I think also, especially with doctors and, and practitioners, like that vulnerability is opens you up to like, people will accept that. And it really like, if, if you, if someone were to get on, whether it's social media or just with their patients and be like, listen, like, I have this one patient. I don't know what's going on. And like, just show that vulnerability because that's real, you know, and like let down that wall. And people are attracted to that. That's not that in like a negative way, like they want to see you crying on social media. It's not like that, but like that vulnerability, that honesty, that truth serum is a great thing, you know? So, so yeah. And it is hard for them too. Like it's hard for us. It's hard for them. And it's not really that fun of a place. And then even when it, I always say like when it does get, like when you do have good news, you graduate. Right. And so, and that's also for them too. Like when they, when one of their patients gets, does get pregnant, they leave and they're, and then they're still working with trying to get everyone else pregnant or new patients that are trying to get pregnant. So if you have that celebratory moment, it's like so fleeting and then, and then they're gone to their regular OBGYN and, and you're still working with the next. And so it, it's, it doesn't make it not important. It's so still so important, but like they don't really experience that. And then they don't know what happens. Like they don't necessarily get like the baby pictures or the Christmas cards. Like they're just still in it. And it, it weighs on, it weighs on everyone. Lindsay from Infertile AF and I talked about this on the show because the alternative to not sharing this is whatever the person creates in their head based on the experience they have, based on what they're going through and how they feel at that time. 
So if you're not sharing what compassion fatigue looks like or discussing why it's so difficult to give someone a prognosis and be really strong about your recommendation, but also not feel like you're pushing it on them. If you're not showing us your side of the nuance, then it's that I'm just going to make up whatever the heck is in my head. And that's when you get things like he's a money grubber. She called me fat. She called me old. And we see online reviews like this all the time. And sometimes you get a pile on. That's what everybody's really afraid of, I think, is not just the one-off. But sometimes you do get a pile on. And and then other times you have your people, the people that are really satisfied with their care, that really appreciate it, that come to the defense. And hopefully you're building that proactively so it's not responding and creating some sort of internet fight but by by doing that you have you, you do have a way of changing the the narrative and not falling into that trap mm-hmm. yeah i totally agree and i think also what you know last year was my first year going to asrm which as you guys know I mean, my followers don't know, but the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, the big conference. I had never been before. And when I went, I found it, it was so eye-opening, not just to me, but to my followers. First of all, like, I got a million DMs and everyone's like, my doctor's there, my doctor's there, my doctor's there, my doctor's there. Like, people were like, oh, yeah, that's why I didn't see my doctor today. Like, I saw a different doctor because my doctor's there, you know. And then I had some, like, random videos of doctors, like, so you guys know this, but for, for my followers, like they have like prosthetic vaginas at this. I mean, you walk in and it's like, it's unreal, right? I mean, you've been there. So there's prosthetic vaginas, there's speculums, there's this, there's that, like, like there's semen hanging from the ceiling. Like it is like, it's crazy. And I took a video of this one doctor, like using this new equipment, I guess, I don't know, device on this prosthetic vagina with the speculum side. And I was like, shut like to a regular person like this is crazy you know and the doctor happened to be a doctor of like a number of my followers and people I think really really like seeing the doctors like that you know and then like I had I took some video of like at one of the there's also like big parties which you would not know that like your fertility doctor actually goes to these massive parties right and I took some videos and I was like, guys, this is what your doctor's doing. Like, they are human, you know, and like, they're part- All right, but let's talk. Can we talk about that for a yeah. second? Because I said the first of those big parties that I ever went to, I've said it on the podcast. I've said it in meetings with clients and I've said it in meetings with the people that throw these meetings. They're lucky that you find that cool, Karen, and that you... Like, like you want to share that and it's like, hey, your your doctors can get down. But here's the problem. If they're not telling their story and just being occasionally transparent and honest, and then you come in and you're saying, here's what your doctors are doing. True. Right? So I like I've wait I tell people that all the time. I said, this is a liability if it's used against you and if it deserves to be used against you. So I tell people from the beginning, like when my team starts and they've never been to this industry side or when, like, like 
other people. I say, there's some big parties. I go, I have fun. That's what I like. That's the type of person I am. Like, I'm not worried about something being taken on, like some video being shared and going viral and be like, look at what Griff's doing because my parents know that, that that's why I don't get super drunk and I don't <laughs> I don't touch people who wear where they shouldn't be touched I and but I think that if you're and, and people just expect that people know that I'm I'm a fun guy I'm social I like dancing that is shared people know that because they follow me on social media so if I get if if somebody comes to one of those parties and puts me on blast, it's like, well, you knew that he was going to get down to right. <laughs> the Cupid shuffle. Like he already told us that. But if the same person does it and, you know, the same person is putting this on and gets put on Huffington Post or Jezebel or any vice broadly, any number of things that could really distribute the reach widely and quickly and it's like, oh, that's where my IVF money went, that I got a second mortgage on my house, that I, that's why my waiting list to see my doctor is six weeks long. So I, I, I think this is really important to talk about because I want to be on the right side of this. And I, you know, and I do, and I say this so transparently because I only envision these things happen. And the fact that you went, you noticed it and you did it means that it's possible. You just happen to have a perspective of this is cool. This is fun. I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with it. I don't think there's anything wrong with big parties. I don't think that there's even wrong with, with some whining and dining as long as like it's not this secretive thing that is contrary to the image that's otherwise portrayed. Right. Into the goal, into the goal, which is helping people. Right. Like that's, I, I totally agree. I think that, that, you know, as long as everything's happening in a tasteful manner and it's, and the, you know, it's not abusive to like, I guess, because like a lot of the funding is coming, well, not a lot, but some of the funding is coming from like the patient's pocket, right? Because they're paying for the drugs, the drugs are on the market, the insurance is paying for the drugs, you know what I mean? Or whatever. Well, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, it's all coming from. It. Right. I mean, at the, at the, if we well, like, trace well, it all the way back. So exactly. you could, one could always make that argument. Right. So, it's, so as long as it's not like feeling it, like it's an abuse of like, of, of their, you know, of the patient and of the patient's money and and stuff like that i think that that it like i mean it was really eye-opening for a lot of my followers because i was like look and this guy i mean he was and i said i was like is it okay that i did this like and i and before i did it, i said i'm gonna post this is that okay and he was like yeah yeah that's fine because i wouldn't have just posted like this guy putting a catheter in her vagina without his permission but it was just so funny the feedback and and so many women messaged me they're like that's my doctor oh my god i'm gonna see him on tuesday he'd be doing that to me on tuesday actually you know and like and I was like, oh, that's so funny. And she's like, yeah. And then it brought them together. You know, like they were like, that's my doctor. I'm going to say that I saw my hilarious referral or that so-and-so. And, and it actually brought them like, it ha- brought, had them connect in a way that they wouldn't have already connected if it was just another regular Tuesday morning ultrasound, you know, or HSC yeah. or whatever. So I think yeah. that that, you know, is also important that that connection, like we're human. We go to these conferences. We're there to learn. But also, like you know, this this other stuff happens, and and if you if they see me and they connect with me, and a lot of them are my patients, or a lot of their not my patients, my followers, or a lot of their patients, there's that connection there, and it makes them seem human and approachable, as opposed to like this doctor who's sitting there with his with his or her hands clasped and say, you know, these are your options. 
I can't, I advise you to do this. However, you know, like it just brings it more familiar and, and like I said, approachable. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now back to inside reproductive health. To clarify, I don't want to take the transparency thing to an extreme because I think it can be definitely taken to extreme and probably is when you hear people talk in Silicon Valley about transparency, etc. I'm not saying you should like put everything on Facebook Live or Instagram or that you're not entitled to privacy. What I am saying is that check your liabilities and just by just by letting people know, like, hey, I go out sometimes, I enjoy it. I really like going out with other doctors. Sometimes we act silly. And sometimes these are people that I haven't seen in a long time, but I did fellowship training with. And we get to see each other once in a while. And I I only spend two weekends away from the office and, and don't see my kids. Like whatever it is, like just by sharing that, you're protecting yourself. And by being honest, you don't need to put everything on. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, if you have that human first armor by being forthcoming about who you are and a little bit about what you're up to, then if the bizarro world doppelganger Karen comes and does the same thing, then instead of people saying, oh, that's cool, that's my, that's my doctor, I'm glad he's having fun, that's when it becomes a straight up pile on. Yeah. And that's what I don't want for this field. It's not good for anybody. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think that, I mean... If you ask a fertility doctor, like, what their worst day at work was, I would probably bet they can't give you one, you know? Like, there's probably, like, I mean, if you have a doctor who's been in the field for, let's say, 20 years, they probably have over 100 horrific days, and not just horrific because of their schedule or because they didn't get their lunch brought in, you know what I mean? Like, 
actual like human tragedy, like actual tragic things that happened that they had to deal with again and again and again. And, and that's, that's hard. Like that's, you know, and I think patients have a hard time really seeing that because perspective is very difficult when you're going through infertility because like you're just so hyper-focused on yourself and your reproductive organs and what you're eating. And you're so, you feel like you're a science experiment. Like I know that's what I kept saying. I'm like, I, I'm a science experiment. Like they just don't know what's happening. We're putting that. It's like a, like, like in, when you're in middle school, there's like a control and then there's the variables and like we just have to figure it out. And that's how you feel. You feel like a science experiment. But I think that what's important is that understanding that like the doctors have also a really, really hard job, you know, and they, they're allowed to like to go out with their friends and do that stuff because they probably have had so many more tragic days than you have, you know, even if your tragedy is tragedy, they've had that probably times dozens and putting that into perspective, which is hard as a patient. Like, I'm not gonna lie. Like, that's really hard to be like, okay, doc, like, I'm not going to take this out on you because you're giving me the bad news or okay, nurse on the phone. I'm not going to take this on you because you're giving me the bad news. Like, I know that this is hard for you to deliver this news to me as well. And I'm going to try to control, you know, try to control myself and maybe I'll just go eat my weight in Mexican tonight or whatever, you know, like just uh, that it's not, it's not their fault that you're going through that they are trying to help you. That is a very well-balanced perspective to have between both sides of the community. You could be an account manager at Fertility Bridge. <laughs> Before we wrap up, though, we, are you comfortable talking about what your relationship was like with your clinic when you were going through treatment and what it's like now if there is still a relationship? Are you comfortable talking about that? Yes, absolutely. I went to NYU Fertility Clinic in New York City, and uh, I felt like I had such great care there. I remember when I first, so what happened was my husband and I were trying to get pregnant for probably about six months, and I wasn't, we were having unprotected sex. I wasn't getting my period, but I also was getting all these negative pregnancy tests, and I had no idea what was happening because I was like, like when I went to sex ed in middle school, like you have unprotected sex, you don't get your period. Like that means you're pregnant, right? So I was like, what is happening? It was really weird because for six months, I just thought I was pregnant every single month. And so my OBGYN started me on aranaclomid, nothing happened. Another aranaclomid, nothing happened. And she left me a voicemail on a Friday at like 4.45. And she was like, I'm pretty positive you have PCOS. And she said that on the voicemail, which, which this wasn't at NYU. This was a different, a different doctor. And I was like, I don't think you can leave messages like that. Like that's violating like HIPAA rules, right? Like, I don't know. And she was like, I think you have PCOS and I want you to go to NYU Fertility. And it's Friday afternoon at 4.45 and I'm out of the office, was basically her thing. And I was like, so I Googled it, obviously. This was back in 2011. And I was like, oh, like I was a disaster. I almost threw my laptop across the room. Like the only thing I could see was infertile, infertility, not able to have, to have babies, can't get pregnant. And I was like, <gasps> like, I had like, I had devoted my life to children. I'm a school teacher at the time I was teaching first grade. Like I just, I was completely floored. So I called the fertility clinic. I don't know, probably like 75 times on that Monday. I got an appointment for early, this was right around Christmas too. I got an appointment for early January. And when I met with my doctor, he ex confirmed that I have PCOS through an ultrasound. He, he was like, you know, I could confirm it with blood too, but I don't need to. Like, it's very obvious you have PCOS. And he was very positive. He said, you know, I'm not going to make any promises. However, 
you know, I've treated a lot of women with PCOS and we can definitely, I'm pretty positive you will be able to get pregnant. And he explained to me that like, that it's, I have a lot of eggs and it's, that is actually a good thing and a bad thing, you know? So he was very positive and he definitely calmed me down a little bit. I mean, I was still going absolutely insane, like absolutely insane in my head, but he did calm me down a little bit. He gave me my options and they were just great. I had one IUI with them and it failed. I remember I drank, I drank like a bottle of wine that night. And then the next morning I was like, I happened to be leafing through a people magazine. I found out that Snooki was pregnant and I was like, come on. Like this was like before Snooki was like the rebranded mom. Snooki was like, she was still a train wreck Snooki. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? Um, and uh, the next month I had another IUI and it actually, it worked and they, you know, monitored me pretty closely. And then I, and then I graduated. So the first round with them was, was pretty quick. Actually, when I went back to have my second daughter, I went straight back to them. There's no point for my husband and I to try on our own. They said, they said that to me and I completely agreed. And so we started with multiple IUIs. I did it was four IUIs, but five months of Clomid because the first month, like nothing happened. We did a step up. And after my fourth failed IUI, I decided, and my husband supported me, that to go forward with IVF. And what I've learned since doing my IVF cycle with NYU is that like my numbers were very unusual, like on the high end. I had 33 eggs that turned into 17 day five blastocysts, which is a lot. And I didn't know that. Like I didn't, I always like one of the things I joke about, like Google existed. Like I just didn't, like I didn't Google because I didn't want to Google too much. Leggings also existed and I gained so much weight through the Clomid, but I didn't know about leggings either at this point. So I was just like trying to fit in my regular clothes, but they were great. We put in one, one blast and less than a week later, I knew I was pregnant, but it was confirmed like, you know, at the, at the right time. But I thought that my clinic was amazing. They always called. They were so nice on the phone. Every failed cycle, they were like, hey, Karen, you know, like really understanding. I thought they were very efficient. I didn't always see my doctor, you know, because you in the morning cycles, you see whatever doctors are on. And I remember there were months and months that like I wasn't, I wouldn't be in contact with my doctor, but I always knew that like, that he was there. I don't know. He was kind of like, like big brother, you know, at least I, that's what I felt. And that was the impression I got, whether that actually was the case or not. I, I truly don't know, but I always kind of, in my mind, had this idea of like, they see all the results like around lunchtime and they, they make their decisions and then everyone else calls. Like, I don't, and I don't know if that's actually how it works or not, but I always thought that that I was under his care, even though I wasn't speaking to him directly. But yeah, and then when I wrote this book, I talked about like the the fertility clinic rules and and the you know morning ultrasound and one time and like just like the lube, like wiping away the lube and like all this stuff. And and when I I wasn't in contact with him when I wrote the book, and I changed his name in the book to the name of the pizza place down the street from me. His anonymity, and I didn't know if he would approve or not. And then after I wrote it and after it was published, I sent a copy to him and uh, he was like, oh my goodness, this was amazing. And people were like, why did you change his name? And I was like, well, I just didn't know at the time, you know? And he called me like after he got the book and he was like, he's like, there had to have been something bad at the clinic. Like there had, he's like, you, cause I was very, like there was nothing bad happened at my clinic. You know, it was all great. And he was like, there had this to- is Dr. Big Cheese Lorenzetti. Yeah, right. Like there had to be something that wasn't good. He's like, you were so nice about NYU. And I was like, to be honest, like 
the clinic was amazing. Like there was one time where, where another woman cut me in line and I like in my head went like totally incredible Hulk on her. Cause I was like, are you like, ah, it was like right in the beginning of my IVF cycle. But I was like, well, you can't control like a patient cutting someone else. Like that's not your fault, you know? And he was like, wow, no, like it was really nice. So I mean, they've been, they've, they've been amazing. And, and right now him and I, we are in contact. Like I'm not so much in contact with the clinic, but he helps me sometimes if I, you know, need a reference, not a reference, but if I need to contact someone, I'm doing a show in Boston. So I'm like, Hey, do you know anyone in Boston I could talk to? And maybe they could tell their patients about this, their show and stuff like that. So that's really the only connection I have with them now. They were a great clinic and I, I highly recommend them. Karen, how would you want to conclude with how providers, clinics can best communicate with the patients to share the well-rounded perspective that you see? That's a great question. I think that a lot of patients are looking for like more like that, that whole treating the whole patient, right? So clinics that offer, you know, health and wellness, clinics that offer, you know, nutritionists that are specifically based to to infertility, clinics that offer yoga for infertility or acupuncture for infertility, things like that, that can really help balance out a patient. Clinics that offer support groups or online support groups, however it is, whether it's their own support group or whether they say, listen, like check out, check out this account, not necessarily hilariously infertile, but you know, like you said, a a list of, of different resources that you can have. I think that the main thing for, for patients is that they want to feel like they're not alone and they want to feel like that everything that is going on with them is normal and they don't feel like that they feel like they're in an island isolated and they feel like nothing that's happening is normal they feel sometimes they don't feel like you know like but they feel less of a woman or they feel less of a man or whatever it is and it affects them and and I think that looking at the whole patient is really important and also another thing that I, I wrote an article about, I forget for where, but if someone had like IVF and infertility doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? So like if you're going through infertility or IVF, like if all you had to do was go from your house to the clinic and home and do nothing else, it would still be really, really hard. But like you're adding commuting, you're adding bills, you're adding full-time jobs, multiple full-time jobs, maybe secondary infertility, you're adding children at home, you're adding, you know, a marriage relationship that could be causing issues there. You're adding, if these things aren't covered, you're adding the financial burden. Like there's so many added pieces that like, that really, really weigh on people who are going through infertility. And I mean, I remember one time, like I took like the last tissue out of a tissue box and I was like, Like I like it's like the littlest, teeniest, tiniest things are like I can't handle life because it's like you feel like everything is working against you. Like I remember one time like hitting every single red light and almost being late to work and rushing in and being like, it honestly feels like it's me against the entire world. And so I think that that understanding that and trying, you can't take away all those other elements, but trying to make it a little bit smoother for the patients and being like, listen we understand what you're going through. Like you have this whole litany of things to do for your infertility doctor and for your clinic that you need to do. And you have your regular life, which is, I mean, it's 2019. It's stressful, you know? So I think understanding those things are really, really important for clinics and and practitioners. Karen, thank you for your humanity. And thank you for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. 
If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.